Palmont Palatial Ultimate Sports Talk.com radio studios for the final time this year. Good evening, everyone. I'm Dave Mitchell. Welcome to the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. And yes, I did say for the final time this year, because this is the final Ultimate Sports Talk Show for 2015. There's just too many holidays coming up over the next month. You've got Thanksgiving, you've got Christmas, you've got New Year's, plus we have got a plethora I love using that word, plethora of high school basketball coming up starting tomorrow night. But when we continue our basketball coverage, and I will be doing all of the play-by-play here on UltimateSportsTalk.com of Waynedale High School girls and boys basketball, a majority of the girls' games are played on Thursday night, which would interrupt our broadcast schedule here on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. So we are putting the Ultimate Sports Talk Show on hiatus until after the basketball season, and we hope you understand why we're doing that, but hey, I need a life, and unfortunately, when I'm doing 42 basketball games coming up over the next three months, it's not going to be a whole heck of a lot for me to even have time to eat, and most of you who know me know I like to eat, and that's what's going to be happening coming up here over the next few months, high school basketball. So the Ultimate Sports Talk Show going on hiatus, and unfortunately, We're not going to be able to keep you abreast of what's going on with the Ohio State Buckeyes, so you're going to have to do that with some other media capabilities instead of turning towards me. But tonight we're going to be listening to Urban Meyer talking about the Michigan State game coming up this weekend, and then the Buckeyes wrap things up next week in the regular season with the Michigan Wolverines. So the Buckeyes trying to stay into the playoff picture with a victory this weekend at home on Senior Day in the shoe against Michigan State. Kevin McHale was fired as head coach of the Houston Rockets. We'll talk about that. Of course, the big story this week was Ronda Rousey getting basically the crap kicked out of her on Saturday night by Holly Holm. We're going to take a look at that coming up on the Ultimate Sports Talk show here tonight. The NHL has got a new all-star format, and there's a big boxing extravaganza coming up on Saturday night, courtesy of promoter Oscar De La Hoya. But all that coming up on tonight's Ultimate Sports Talk Show. But first... Major League Baseball is over, but the awards ceremonies are continuing this week. And tonight, just hot off the presses, the National League has announced that in his fourth Major League campaign, 22-year-old Washington National slugger Bryce Harper, who turned 23 after the regular season ended, led the National League in on-base percentage, slugging percentage, weighted on-base average, weighted runs created plus, isolated power, and wins above replacement, that famous war category, won the National League Most Valuable Player Award. Harper was the first player in Nationals history. Of course, they only started in 2005 after they moved to Washington from Montreal to lead the National League in home runs. He set the Nats' single-season record for walks, topping Adam Dunn's 116, and topped the franchise mark as well, passing Montreal Expos outfielder Ken Singleton, who'd held the franchise record since 1973. He was also the only player in Major League Baseball history with at least 42 homers, 124 walks, 118 runs scored in a single season at age 22 or younger. So he did enough to win 
the National League Most Valuable Player Award, even though his team finished second in the National League East behind National League pennant-winning New York Mets. Now, elsewhere in the National League this week, the Rookie of the Year Award was a unanimous decision, and that went to third baseman Chris Bryant of the Chicago Cubs. Joe Madden of the Cubs also won the Manager of the Year Award, and the Cy Young Award went to Jake Arrieta, again, of the Chicago Cubs. So it was the trifecta for the Cubs winning the Rookie of the Year, Manager of the Year, and the Cy Young Award winner. But the MVP in the National League goes to Bryce Harper of the Washington Nationals. Well, as far as the American League most valuable player, it's anyone's guess as to who it could be. Early in the season, you would have thought it would be Toronto Blue Jays third baseman Josh Donaldson. But then in the middle of the year, you could have gone with Mike Trout of the Los Angeles Angels, who had just an outstanding season. And then at the end of the year, you'd look at things and you'd say, hey, it could be Lorenzo Cain of the Kansas City Royals. But who did it end up being? Josh Donaldson. He was the tried and true most valuable player in the American League, and he was voted as the most valuable player, which was announced just a few minutes ago. First, the numbers. Donaldson had 123 RBIs. That was first in the American League. 41 homers this year, third in the AL. 122 runs, tops in Major League Baseball. He was third in the American League with a 939 on-base percentage and a very good 297 batting average for a power hitter. And then... The context of those numbers. He joined the Blue Jays and was the missing piece that they needed offensively to hit behind Juan Batista and right ahead of Edwin Encarnacion. He helped them to 93 wins this year and the American League Eastern Division title. As far as I'm concerned, that was a no-brainer. Josh Donaldson just named the most valuable player in the American League. Now, the Rookie of the Year, I had a little problem with. Carlos Correa won it from Houston. He had 22 home runs this year in 100 games, which is a rookie record. But Francisco Lindor of the Cleveland Indians really had more of an impact on his team than Correa did. Still, Correa won the Rookie of the Year in the American League. Lindor was in second place. Manager of the Year, boy, you could have gone a couple of different ways with this one. Houston's manager could have gotten it, but the Texas Rangers manager, Jeff Bannister, they won the American League West this year. Bannister named the American League Manager of the Year and the Cy Young Award winner. Boy, it was a good race, but Dallas Keuchel of the Houston Astros ended up winning that award. So Dallas Keuchel, the Cy Young Award winner, but just announced minutes ago, Bryce Harper, the National League Most Valuable Player, and Josh Donaldson of the Toronto Blue Jays, the American League Most Valuable Player. Well, as you know by now, Ronda Rousey lost her fight to Holly Holm on Saturday night. Now that Rousey's been defeated, what's going to happen to her next? Fans everywhere were stunned on Saturday night when Rousey, the bantamweight champion, lost to Holly Holm a former U.S. boxing champ. The fight was the most watched pay-per-view in the UFC history, thanks in no small part to Rousey herself. I had a chance to watch the fight, and I stood there for the round and a half that the fight went on, and when Rousey missed a right to Holmes' head and went stumbling into the screen around the octagon, I knew Rousey was done. That was in the second round. Well, commentators have been up in arms, some urging a rematch, others claiming that Rousey never deserved to be called the best in the first place, which is totally asinine. 
and that her popularity was due more to marketing than actual talent, which that's absolutely false. One popular sports blog went so far as to call Rousey the most overrated athlete of all time. That probably coming from a sports blog that hasn't watched Johnny Manziel play football. While those comments don't say anything conclusive about Rousey's abilities, they do demonstrate her loss has opened her up to criticism that has been largely ignored when she had a perfect record. Rousey's loss to Holm has been likened to Serena Williams' loss at this year's U.S. Open to Italy's Roberta Vinci and Mike Tyson's loss to Buster Douglas in 1990. I find it more like Tyson's loss. Neither athlete's personal brand has been noticeably damaged by these losses, though it should be noted that both have a much longer record of wins than Rousey does. What's more, Rousey's marketability has actually increased in the short run, as her promised rematch with Holm is sure to be even more talked about than the original fight. Losing that match, though, could be a serious blow. Now, nobody is expecting that rematch to take place for at least six months because the UFC has put her on a 180-day watch because of the knockout that Rousey sustained. So that probably is not going to happen until at least next June or July. Well, you can call it a 10-week preseason, but Ohio State's 2015 football season begins this Saturday in the shoe at 3.30 on ABC. Now, in theory, the real work begins. The first 10 games were just a prelude to this Michigan State win when they visit Columbus at 9-1 and and ninth in the college football playoff rankings. Despite a fluky loss to Nebraska, which countered a fluky win at Michigan, the Spartans have all of their goals on the table. Beat Ohio State at 10-0, and the Spartans would be two wins from a potential playoff bid. The Buckeyes are in the middle of a 30-game conference winning streak, which is a college football record. Yet, head coach Urban Meyer is trying to keep the team in mind. There's probably 10 places like this in America that, you know, you keep keep keep, keep building a beast and you got to feed it. So, you know, our, our focus, the really good thing about myself, our staff, and our players is the focus is not on anything. Are we playing good enough? Are we, we know there's issues. This is not a perfect team. I've never seen a perfect team. Matter of fact, we've got a long way to go. There's certain areas we're not playing very good, and that's why we practice all the time. Ohio State is established. Michigan State is established. The Spartans are 62-15 and 15 since the start of the 2010 season, and 40% of those losses came in one season. That was in 2012. This is the fourth straight season in which both the Buckeyes and Spartans are ranked at the time of their meeting. This has become the most reliable marquee battle in the Big Ten. Last year, the Buckeyes went into East Lansing and beat the Spartans, springing them into the national championship picture. That was our best game offensively. That was uh, by far. That was we threw for over 300. We ran against an, an, a, not a good defense, a great defense. That was, uh, you know, you just kind of watch it. We're not there right now. We've got to get there fast when you start playing teams like this and a talented team like this. So that was that's one of the first things I, when I came and watched that uh, uh, Sunday morning is my goodness that was uh, JT was 
ridiculous. Our receivers played great. The offense line blocked that defense line. And, and once again, against a, not a good defense, a great defense. The Spartans provide an interesting matchup. Their pass defense isn't as elite as it has been, but they're still good. The Buckeyes are a team that has breezed through their first 10 games. But now they have a team that is a national championship caliber. And what concerns Meyer is, can the team make the jump from just getting by to pure dominance? Sure. I'm very concerned. Uh, but that's I, I live my life concerned. So, you know, yeah, we go out and practice. We're facing a very the best defensive line maybe in college football. You know, I think theirs and ours are very comparable and uh, just very, very good players. And and one of the best quarterbacks in Big Ten history. And his what, someone showed me his winning record is that's how you evaluate quarterback. Evaluate a quarterback is do you win games because that's his job and he's he wins almost every game he plays. And of course, Meyer is speaking of Connor Cook, a definite pro QB, one of the guys that I'd like to see the Browns take a chance on in the draft next year. Look, both teams talk the talk, walk the walk, and they should. They've combined to win 68 games over the past three seasons. Ohio State has won 35, Michigan State has won 33. And with all due respect to Iowa, these programs are the class of the conference right now. Now, it might change next year. Heck, it might change next week if Michigan beats Ohio State. But this senior class at Ohio State has been the dominant force in the Big Ten. And Meyer reflected upon what this senior class has accomplished. Last game in a horseshoe, and they'll be uh, honored. And sometimes you honor senior classes, and you honor because I guess you have to honor senior classes. Then other times you honor senior classes because of their contributions to a uh, great university and a great uh, football program are kind of over the top, and this one is. Uh, 48 wins since their freshman year, uh, which is an Ohio State program record. Um, a record 30-game win streak, which is Big Ten, and I think someone said a national record. And then they've been a part of two winning streaks, uh, 24 and 23 games, which is both uh, Ohio State records. So uh, if you... I always joke around with our players, say, hey, how's it going, seniors? It's going pretty good. And these kids, uh, these kids really, I look at these names, it's going to be a tough day. Uh, seniors' day is always a tough day, especially for the guys that are really, really invested. And you look at some of these guys, and from the fifth-year guys, Joel uh, Braxton, Chase Ferris, Nick Vanette, and Bryce Haynes, all wonderful people. Um, and then your fourth-year guys, Armani, who's not playing, but he's still very involved, Warren Ball, Cam Williams, a uh, real soldier for us, Tommy Shutt, turned out to be a, a great kid for us, Adolphus Washington, Jacoby Boren, Taylor Decker, and uh, obviously Josh Perry. So incredible group of people. For the third straight year, these teams face off in the league's marquee game. But for now, for this week, for this Saturday, this is the game that matters. This is the game the Buckeyes and Spartans have been waiting for. Heck, this is the game we've all been waiting for all season long. Michigan State, 9-1 and one on the year, number 9 in the country. Ohio State, number 3 in the country, and 10-0 and 0 on the season. You can watch the game Saturday afternoon on ABC, and that will be at 3.30. And it's going to be a barn burner. Well, Nick Saban of Alabama went on a bit of a diatribe during his press conference yesterday. The Tide play FCS school Charleston Southern Saturday before playing Auburn in the final game of the regular season. Saban didn't want anyone in the room looking ahead to the Auburn game, so he invoked 
a 2011 game against Georgia Southern as proof why everyone should pay attention on Saturday. Now listen to yourself. Yes, Saban cusses. So if you've got a problem with that, cover up your sensitive ears right now. Nick, just in terms of their, their quarterback, obviously has some Division One or FBS experience playing at UAB. What have you seen from him? He's a very good player. You know, he's a he's a really good player, and he does a great job with their offense. And you know, th- th- these teams that are typically the best teams in, in in their division are really good teams. All right, and you all may be taking the week off, all right, this week, but I'm not. And a lot of people take a lot of things for granted, and I get asked questions like, well, how important is it for the, the young guys to get to play this week? Well, how in the hell do you know they're going to get to play? I mean, what makes you think that you can just assume that they're going to get to play? Because you're assuming that the other team is not very good? They do have a Division One quarterback. He plays like a Division One quarterback, and they're very, very productive on offense, and they do a great job of executing what they do. And if we don't play good against them, you all don't remember the Georgia Southern game, do you? I don't think we had a guy on that field that didn't play in the NFL, and about four or five of them were first-round draft picks. And I think that team won a national championship, but I'm not sure. And they run through our ass like shit through a tin horn, man, and we could not stop them. Could not stop them. Could not stop them. Because we, 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 we couldn't get a look in practice. We didn't practice it right. All right and everybody said the same thing in that game. Y'all took a week off. All right, this wasn't important. All right, so it's not important to anybody else. It's got to be important to the players, and it's got to be important to us. You know, everybody gets all excited about the beginning of the season. You know, you get excited about getting married. All right, but after you're married for a while, you know, you've got to have a process to make it work. All right, and no matter what happens, we need to have a process to make it work in every game that we play. Every game that we play. Can't assume anything. I don't even know what you asked me, but I just wanted to say that. Did anybody see that game? You saw that game? Yeah. I think we'd given up like 300 yards rushing the whole season in 10 games. That's like 30 yards a game. And all anybody wanted to talk about was how dominant the front was and how nobody could run against us. They got 300 yards rushing in one game. I love Nick Saban. If the Browns could get him as coach and director of player personnel, I'd take him in a nanosecond. Alabama beat Georgia, Georgia Southern in that game he was referencing, 45-21. to And the Eagles ran 39 times for 302 yards. So will 9-1 Charleston Southern do the same? No matter if Alabama stops CSU or not, what Saban said Wednesday will live in infamy. If Charleston Southern has any success at all, it may be the funniest quote of the 2015 season. So let's go over the top 25 college football schedule for this Saturday, as we do each and every week on the Ultimate Sports Talk Show. This, of course, our last show. Starting off at noon on ESPNU, number 21 Memphis will be at Temple. On the SEC Network, Florida Atlantic goes to number 8 Florida. Also at noon on ABC, number 2 Michigan, or I'm sorry, number 12 Michigan at 8-2, and two, plays 7-3 and three, Penn State. On ESPN, number 17, North Carolina will be at 5-5 five and five Virginia Tech. On ESPN 2, 2-8 two Purdue will be at number 5 and unbeaten and at 10-0, the Iowa Hawkeyes. At 3 o'clock on ESPN 3, Chattanooga will be at number 14, Florida State. On ESPNU, unbeaten, 
at 10 and 0 and number 19 Houston will be at 5 and 5 Connecticut. Also at 3:30 on ESPN2, Wake Forest will be at number 1 Clemson. Clemson still unbeaten at 10 and 0. At 3:30 on CBS, number 15 LSU will be at number 22 Ole Miss. Also at 3:30 on the Big 10 Network, number 20 Northwestern at 8 and 2 on the year goes to number 25 Wisconsin. They are also at 8 and 2 on the season. On Fox UCLA will be at number 13, Utah. Also at 3.30 on ESPN, Southern Cal at number 24 on the year will be at number 23, Oregon. Now at 4 o'clock on the SEC Network, Charleston Southern, like I said, will be at Alabama. On the CBS Sports Network at 7 o'clock now, moving to the nighttime games. Number 16, Navy at 8-1 will be at 5-5 five five, Tulsa. At 7.30 on Fox, the Saturday night game of the week on Fox will be Baylor, number 10, at number 6, Oklahoma State, and the Cowboys are 10-0. Now, on NBC, Notre Dame at 9-1 will be entertaining Boston College at 3-7. At 8 o'clock on ABC, their Saturday night game of the week has TCU at number 18, taking on number 7, Oklahoma. The Sooners will be hosting that game. And the late game on Saturday night on ESPN will be Cal, 6-4 in the season, going to Stanford at number 11 and 8 and 2 taking on the Cardinal. Well, many people think it's about time. I don't. Nonetheless, in 2 weeks it's going to happen. It's Johnny Manziel time in Cleveland for the Browns. And even as the team is in the midst of its bye week, the Browns made headlines naming Manziel the rest of the season starter. Now, not only did they name him the rest of the season starter, but the next story that came out of his mouth was typical Manziel, was typical Browns, and was just typical media. And what was that? Well, Mike Pettin gave the Browns from Wednesday through Sunday off. They have to be back in town on Monday for practice. So what did Johnny Manziel do? He immediately told the media that he promised the organization he would stay out of trouble while he was on vacation. Well, Manziel is coming off his best game of the year, throwing for 372 yards and a touchdown and a losing effort against the Pittsburgh Steelers. But let's look at it realistically, folks. The Browns still only scored nine points. And the last I knew, it was the quarterback's responsibility to put points on the scoreboard, and Manziel is not doing it. In his last two starts, they've put up a total of 19 points, and you can't win an NFL game scoring 19 points in one game, let alone in two. The Fox Sports Live crew debates whether they think Manziel should be a starter in the league. No, and I think everyone's going to like, well, he's changed. It's nothing about the off-the-field stuff. I think the Browns have done as well of a job as you could in managing that stuff and coming out of rehab he has been a saint so far for Cleveland minus the one issue that we had a couple weeks ago to me it's just the size of my quarterback I want a big hulking masculine big throwing quarterback I want Ben Roethlisberger I want Joe Flacco I want Cam Byron Leftwich I want he's not Byron Leftwich not have an arm like those guys and Manziel to me in an AFC North team playing outdoors when you're always going up against the Steelers D and the Ravens D and the Bengals D I just don't know how durable he will be he got injured last year against Carolina when Colin Jones 
knocked him out. I'm curious to see if he's able to last on the field the whole rest of the season. And I'm excited to see what he can do because he looked really good against Pittsburgh. I'm not so concerned about Manziel off the field as much anymore. It's just now as a physical quarterback in the way the league is right now. We've seen Robert Griffin. We've seen Colt McCoy. We've seen all these quarterbacks that aren't the biggest guys. Go down. I'm concerned to see if he's got the durability to do that. He threw from the pocket on Sunday. Even Josh McCown said he was proud of how good he was from the pocket there. And that drive where he had that play where he looked like the old Johnny they football where he was running around. Nine, he Mike. was eight for nine or nine for ten on that drive. Okay. And had a fourth down interception. Put him in camp and goal. Put him in camp. He, he played, he threw in the tight windows from the pocket, which you and a lot of other people said he couldn't do. Yeah. He did it. Mike Pettin had no choice but to turn it over to Johnny Manziel at this point. Why did it take so long for them to name him starter. Because they wanted to do the slow cook with him this year because of all the off-field issues he had and because he didn't prepare real well last year. So they wanted him to earn his way back up. And even when he played well early in the season and some people said, oh, hey, he's ready. Turn it over. The Browns said, no, he's not ready because they wanted to see him go back Take what he did on the field, continue to prepare as a backup under Josh McCown, and again, earn his way up. But at this point, with this team at 2-8, and eight, Mike Pett needing to do something yes, to does. prove to the owner that he deserves to keep his job, why not play the guy that the owner loves and get him to play Adding well? to Mike's point, one of the most interesting things is that quarterback's room, where last year Brian Hoyer was playing for a contract, Brian Hoyer mm-hmm. thought he should be a star. Josh McCown came in knowing the deal. True. When it's Johnny's turn, it'll be Johnny's turn. True. It's been a pretty seamless transition. The fact of the matter is, though, Mike's right. Jimmy Haslam drafted this guy in the first round there. They got one bust in Justin Gilbert. They need to see what they got out of Johnny Manziel. I agree with that. They've got to see what they've got in Manziel. I don't think he's going to be the answer, but you've got to prove it on the field, and that's what the Browns want to see. Do they have to go into the draft next year looking for another quarterback? I think so. I think they're going to have to look for a new coach and a new GM. Quite frankly, after the loss to Pittsburgh on Sunday, I would have cleaned house. I would have fired Farmer. I would have fired Petten. I would have hired an interim coach and just said, guys, This is what I'm doing. If I'm Jimmy Haslam, I'm telling the fans, I'm going to bring in somebody of notoriety that is going to take over this football program and is going to make this team a winner. And this is it. Ray Farmer has proven he can't do it. Mike Pettin has proven he doesn't want to do it. This thing is a mess. And just look at what's going to happen in the last few games now for the Browns with Johnny Manziel as the quarterback Well, Olivia Munn, the actress who is dating Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers, is not appreciative of becoming the target of negativity from Packer fans this week, so she lashed out in response in the social media. The Packers are 6-3 and and have lost three in a row. Star quarterback Aaron Rodgers has gone from starting this season at a near-historical rate to playing well below expectations. In response to the team's slide in the standings, some Packer fans have been looking for a scapegoat, and guess what? They found it in Munn. Here's a sampling of some of the comments left on the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel site blaming Munn for her boyfriend's recent slump. For example, Rodgers needs to choose Munn or the Packers. Another, it all starts with the quarterback. His new girlfriend's either giving him too much or too little. And here's another one, and this one is the craziest thing I've heard. Ever since it came out about Olivia Munn and Rogers and her spouting off on TV about their sex life, Rogers is not a good QB. This team used to glorify God, but now there is no mention of him from any of them. Well, I've got news for you, ma'am. God has more to worry about than Aaron Rodgers and the Packers. And if that's the case, 
Well, I can tell you right now, God left the Browns years ago. And speaking of God in the NFL, maybe he could look upon their officiating because at some point the NFL is going to have to stop talking about the league's officiating problems and do something about them. Whether it's from the nitpicky eyes of fans, media coaches, players, or executives, there is some terrible officiating going on out there. And it's the new normal. When officials blow a significant call, someone notices it. And soon thereafter, it's a major talking point. This is the price of having one of the most popular sports products in America. And it's always under the surgical knife of social media in real time. Which brings us to Tuesday with the NFL's head of officiating, Dean Blandino. He might as well have his own weekly press conference apologizing for another embarrassing late-game mistake by one of his crews. This time, it was a missed false start penalty that would have ended the game in favor of the Baltimore Ravens. Instead, Jacksonville got in position to kick a game-winning field goal as time expired. Most denying about the moment? Well, it happened. Social media threw its own penalty flag immediately. Individuals watching the game in real time saw the mistake, but the NFL didn't. Its officials, who were right there on the field, missed it. And the league office has no mechanism to immediately step in and correct the error. So instead, the game turned, the Ravens shrugged, and Blandino emerged Tuesday to say once again, whoops, we'll do better next time. You know, this is one of those times where you wish the NFL would step in because it cost the Ravens a game. Earlier this season, it cost the Cleveland Browns a game against San Diego out in California when they called the Browns for offsides on a last-second field goal attempt by the Chargers. It was a 55-yarder. They missed it. The officials called an offside penalty on the Browns. They came back, went five yards closer. They kicked the game-winning field goal. San Diego wins. And on Tuesday, Blandino came out once again and said, whoops, there was no offside against the Browns. We're sorry. We'll do better next time. Well, in November, fresh off having players wear pink to raise awareness of breast cancer, the NFL put its coaches in camouflage as part of its Salute to Service campaign. This is different, though, because the teams were not paid by the Department of Defense to do this. Remember when that happened back in September, when Senator John McCain, among others, ripped that as good patriotism, when they found out that the Department of Defense paid the NFL to actually do this? and the NFL was shamed into returning the $6.8 million that they got. Well, the coaches now are wearing the camo hats and camo sweatshirts and even camo headsets, all of which you can purchase. And all of the money is going towards the USO, the Wounded Warrior Project, and the Pat Tillman Foundation. Except for Bill Belichick. He's yet to put any of it on. He has worn a pin with camo on it, but not the full garb. And one thing is for certain, Belichick, though, You cannot say this about the other coaches that we know of, but we know Belichick is extremely pro-military. He grew up in Annapolis, Maryland, where his father Steve was an assistant coach with the U.S. Naval Academy, and his heroes have long been history-making military personnel. And all four of the Patriots' trips to the White House to celebrate winning a Super Bowl have included stops at Walter Reed Hospital, the Army's flagship medical facility for wounded vets. Hey, some sad news out of the NFL today. Former NFL quarterback Doug Flutie said both his parents 
died within an hour of each other on Wednesday. On his Facebook page, Flutie said his father, Dick, died of a heart attack in a Florida hospital and that his mother, Joan, also suffered another heart attack and died less than an hour later. Flutie didn't elaborate on the circumstances of their deaths but called them incredible parents and grandparents who had been married 56 years and had four children, including Doug, who's now 53. Well, when Alden Smith is eligible to play another regular season NFL game again, he'll be 27. The next chance he gets to play a full 16-game season, he'll be 28. He won't be a kid anymore. He won't have the benefit of the doubt that youth gives players or lots of playing time that helps them make up for their mistakes. He probably is never going to play again in the NFL. And the 120 crew of Joanne Neeson, Eric Edholm, and Laura Britt report on the one-year suspension of Alden Smith. The Raiders linebacker has been suspended one year without pay for violating the NFL's substance abuse policy. This suspension stems from an alleged incident back in August. He pleaded not guilty to misdemeanor counts of hit and run, drunken driving, and vandalism charges. Now, once this suspension is served, what do you think his future looks like in the NFL? You know, I don't think it changes his future too much just because when the Raiders signed him this fall, they knew this was coming, which is not surprising anyone. And... He's played well. So going from there, I think he comes back, and if he doesn't do anything else and he keeps himself in shape, he's right back where he was this fall when a team signed him. I think you're absolutely right about that. Both sides knew what they were in for. Alden Smith, to his credit, made $3 million based on his play on the field, salary, base salary, and bonuses. So he got something out of it, too. Now, look, obviously the bigger issue is can he keep his life in order? Can he be the guy who who finally – I would say admits to a problem and deals with it because there have been multiple incidents, multiple issues that he's fallen back on with alcohol and, and substance abuse. Seemed to be in denial at one yeah. point. We both uh, went to Missouri. We saw him play in school, and uh, you just hope he can fulfill his potential. He's an outstanding player. Yeah, I mean, that amount of talent, it's, it would really be sad to see that go to waste. It, maybe a change of scenery is a good thing, though. I know yep. he was very apologetic and made some steps to make changes in San Francisco, but maybe you've got to get out of one team, one organization that was – by the end, pretty dysfunctional, go somewhere else, Absolutely. get that fresh start. I don't know. He could reapply with 60 days prior to one year, so it's feasible he could come back even early next season, although we'd expect it to be about one year from today. And, of course, he's got to appeal to NFL Commissioner Roger Goodell, and we'll see what he has to do. And speaking of Goodell and another owner, Mark Cuban, the owner of the Dallas Mavericks, was deep in New England Patriots territory Wednesday night. But he had no problem expressing an unpopular opinion, especially to those people in those parts, about the team's recent scandal. The Dallas Mavericks owner traveled with his team to the TD Garden to watch them take on the Boston Celtics. And before the game, a reporter asked Cuban what he thought about the NFL's handling of Deflategate. His answer? Masterfully. This isn't the first time that Cuban has weighed in on Deflategate. Back in July, the outspoken owner argued Brady's suspension should have been more severe than its original four games because the Patriots quarterback was trying to make a fool out of the commissioner. I don't think he had to try to do that. I love Cuban, but he's way off base here. Goodell is just clueless, and it's not going to stop just because Mark Cuban is saying something about it. Well, of course, the NFL has a game tonight. It's going to be the Tennessee Titans in Jacksonville taking on the Jaguars. The Jaguars coming off of their victory over Baltimore on Sunday. And, of course, we've already talked about that. The Titans 
under Mike Malarkey, trying to win another game. I've got the Titans winning this one, and it will be on the NFL Network kicking off at 825. Here's a look at what's happening on Sunday games. At 1 o'clock on CBS, well, the Oakland Raiders are in Detroit to take on the Lions, and the Raiders are coming off of their loss to the Vikings on Sunday. And, of course, Willie McGinnis and Adam Shine explain why the Raiders need to defeat the Lions if they hope to make the playoffs. It'd be nice if the Oakland Raiders beat the Detroit Lions, the rebuilding since 1957, Detroit Lions. You know, if the Raiders want to be taken seriously as a playoff team, you know what you do? You beat the Detroit Lions. Losing to Minnesota, one of the best teams in the NFL, that's one thing. I don't want to hear that the Lions just beat Green Bay. I don't want to hear it. If you're Oakland, you absolutely positively behind Derek Carr, who must be laughing studying the film of the Detroit defensive backfield. Light him up, dominate, win, take care of business, and move on. And I think the Raiders will win this game in Detroit on Sunday. Elsewhere at 1 o'clock on CBS, the Indianapolis Colts will be in Atlanta. Atlanta's had a tough time scoring as of late. I've got the Colts winning this game, even if Hasselbeck is the quarterback, because Andrew Luck is out with that lacerated kidney for at least a month. On Fox at 1 o'clock, the St. Louis Rams will be in Baltimore to take on the Ravens. I think the Ravens bounce back from that loss to Jacksonville on Sunday. Also on Fox at 1 o'clock, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, fresh off of their victory over Dallas in last-second fashion last Sunday, will be in Philly to take on the Eagles. The Eagles will go with Mark Sanchez at quarterback. I've got the Eagles winning this one. Also at 1 o'clock, Brock Osweider will be going at quarterback for the Denver Broncos, and he will be taking on the Chicago Bears and the Broncos' former head coach, John Fox. It's going to be quite a ball game, and Broncos head coach Gary Kubiak talked about his decision to sit Peyton Manning with that partially torn plantar fasciitis in his foot this week in Chicago. Just walked out of the team meeting, uh, reviewed the game, uh, talked to them about the game, and uh, you know reviewed you know what I thought about in all three phases, and then also went back and talked to them about uh, Peyton's situation. Okay. And I told the team that this week uh, that uh, Peyton is not going to play, uh, that Brock is going to play this week, and all of our full attention is going to be to getting Peyton back and healthy. And uh, so as we, you know, as I walk out of there and I'm here with you guys, that decision has been made. Uh, I know that's the best decision for him, for us to get him back and healthy. And we need to know where we're heading this week uh, with Brock and get our football team ready to play Chicago. When I go back and look at the week I went through last week, as I said, after the game, and then, uh, you know, obviously we come out of the game and I just know that we have to step back here and we have to take the time and make sure that he takes care of himself and we get him back to himself and feeling good. And and uh, like I said, it's something that I wanted to get done. I have nothing against the Broncos holding out Peyton Manning, but I've just got a feeling that the Bears are going to rally around their new coach, John Fox, and want this one more than the Broncos do. I'm going to take the Bears to win at home in this game. Also at 1 o'clock on CBS, the Houston Texans, don't look now, but they're in first place in the AFC Southern Division, are taking on the New York Jets. I've got the Texans winning that football game. Now, I'm not sure if Brian Hoyer is playing or T.J. Yates. doesn't matter. I still think the Texans win. Carolina continues 
They're winning ways at home on Sunday against the Redskins. I've got the Panthers staying unbeaten. And the final 1 o'clock game Sunday on Fox will be Dallas in Miami taking on the Dolphins. Tony Romo is coming back. He'll be reunited with Des Bryant, and I think the Cowboys win this one on the road in Miami. Now, the 4 o'clock game at 4.05, the Kansas City Chiefs are in San Diego taking on the Chargers. I have got Kansas City winning that football game over San Diego. At 425, the Green Bay Packers will look to break their three-game losing streak in Minnesota against the Vikings. Always a big matchup. The Vikings are at home. They're in first place in the Northern Division. But I still have the Packers winning this football game. And at 425 on Fox Sunday afternoon, also the 49ers will be in Seattle taking on the Seahawks. Easy one to pick here. I've got the Seahawks winning that one. The Sunday night game at 830 on NBC, the Cincinnati Bengals go west to take on the Arizona Cardinals. The Bengals need a victory, but I think the Cardinals pull this one out. The Cardinals win it over the Bengals. And on Monday night, the Patriots will play their first game without their star wide receiver, Julian Edelman, who's out with a broken foot for about a month. They'll be home taking on the Buffalo Bills and Rex Ryan. I've got a feeling that the Patriots win this football game, but Willie McGinnis talks about how New England is going to survive after that broken foot suffered by Julian Edelman. We saw it in 2013, you know, when they went to the AFC, the AFC Championship and they were depleted at the, at the receiver position. But, you know, they have the innate ability. Belichick has the innate ability of finding guys to fit this system. And it's not next man up because Edelman is one of the best receivers in the league. But they do have guys, Aaron Dobson, uh, Keyshawn Martin, uh, Amendola. We see them catching a touchdown. Remember, he was signed with the Patriots to be that slot receiver. Because of injury, Edelman just came in and took the spot and just ran away with it. The other thing we can get is the two tight ends right here. So you may see a lot of different packages, a lot of different formations. And let's just remember, they game plan according to who they're playing against. So they do have receivers that have been in the system that should be able to step in. And let's look for Brandon LaFell to step his role up a little bit more, too. There is no better coach in the NFL, bar none than Bill Belichick, and especially there is no better coach than Belichick at preaching the next man up philosophy. That's going to happen with the Patriots. They are on a mission. They want to finish unbeaten and win the world championship. I've got the Pats winning this game on Monday Night Football on ESPN. Finally around the NFL tonight, Cam Newton has no plans to stop his dancing even though some critics may think his touchdown celebrations are just a tad bit excessive. The Panthers' fifth-year quarterback says he's having the time of his life during Carolina's 9-0 season, and he plans to keep enjoying every minute of it. The Charlotte Observer ran a letter to the editor this week from a Tennessee Titans fan who happens to be the mother of a 12-year-old girl, who, she said, thought Newton's celebration was excessive and uncalled for after a touchdown and that she had to explain why, in her daughter's words now, Newton was acting like a spoiled brat. That opinion reflected some of the Titans players also, who said after the game they thought Newton's dance was over the top. Panthers coach Ron Rivera has repeatedly, several times, said that he is fine with Newton's celebrations, although he did say the quarterback's 10-second dance against the Titans might have been a little too long. 10 seconds to dance after a touchdown? Yeah, that is extremely too long. On Monday, Titans coach Mike Malarkey was asked about Newton's antics, and he voiced his opinion, saying there's a code of ethics in the NFL after scoring a touchdown, 
and he didn't feel Newton followed it. Sometime Newton is going to start dancing against the wrong team, and they are going to let him know about it on the field. Well, the 82-game season around the NBA is a long grind. But nonetheless, owners in the NBA, they seem to have a quick trigger when things happen around the league, and especially this week because the Houston Rockets fired head coach Kevin McHale on Wednesday morning amid the team's sluggish start. They had only played 11 games. They were 4-7. and seven. They had lost four in a row. But they pulled the trigger and got rid of Kevin McHale, even after he had led the team to a playoff berth a year ago. So where does Houston go from here, and why was the move made? Well, CBS Sports' Matt Moore discusses those two items. McHale spent four seasons with the Houston Rockets, taking them to the Western Conference Finals last season. However, a sluggish start to this season with blowout losses in their first three and a disappointing run in the last week or so led to his dismissal on Wednesday morning. J.B. Bickerstaff takes over. As interim head coach, Bickerstaff has a really good reputation around the league and has been one of the principal architects of a good Houston defense that has fallen apart this year. Whether Bickerstaff is going to be the long-term answer or not remains to be seen. What we do know is that the Rockets held a players-only meeting this week, and after that they still decided to fire McHale, which is not a great sign of where the team is at. Obviously, you can't trade players when you have this kind of roster built to try and run for a title. The only move to make was to fire McHale, but McHale also did a fantastic job last season with Dwight Howard missing most of the year. McHale had taken a team that really, with its roster and without however many injuries, should have maybe even fallen out of the playoff race and instead won their division, the toughest in basketball at the time, the number two seed, and made a run to the Western Conference Finals. What does that tell you? Did you hear what Moore said there? that they had a great record last year, won their division, and they missed most of the year with their top free agent signee, Dwight Howard. I've never been a Dwight Howard fan, but now you see Howard is healthy, he's back playing, and this team isn't winning. Now, what is the common conduit? It's Dwight Howard. He was missing last year, the team won. He's on the team this year, the team loses. Dwight Howard is a cancer. He has never been on a team that has won big in the NBA. He's had one season that he took a team to the finals. That was with the Orlando Magic back in 2010. That's not going to happen again. Not with the Houston Rockets. Not in the West. And firing Kevin McHale, quite honestly, was the wrong move for this Houston Rockets organization. Now, let's talk about the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavaliers have lost two in a row. They're eight and three. They play the Milwaukee Bucks at home at Quicken Loans Arena tonight. Everybody is upset over the Cavaliers. What's wrong with the Cavs? What's going on with this Cavalier team? LeBron James is playing out of his gourd. He's playing 38, 40 minutes of ball game early in the season, and the Cavaliers are 8-3. and three. Nobody is yelling for David Blatt's head. What the Cavaliers are doing is learning to play. They've got an t- entirely different team. They're losing two of their backcourt players in Kyrie Irving and Iman Shumpert. Right now, they've got a three-man deep bench when it comes to the backcourt. And when I say three men, that includes the two starters, Mo Williams, J.R. Smith, and Matthew Della Vadova. They sent 
Joe Harris, a second-round pick from a year ago, down to Canton. Now, he may be up tonight to play because Mo Williams is probably not going to play with a sore right leg. Kevin Love still getting used to what is going on with him and LeBron playing together. Tristan Thompson didn't have a training camp, so he is having a problem. And the big man in the middle, Timofey Mozgov, he's having trouble getting back his legs underneath him after having knee surgery in the offseason. This is a team and a work in progress, and anybody who thinks that they were just going to walk in and run roughshod over the rest of the NBA is sorely mistaken. This Cavalier team will be there when it counts, and that will be in the playoffs. That's not going to happen until next April when the snow is off the ground here in Ohio. Well, the NHL always comes up with unique ways to handle things, and the 2016 Honda NHL All-Star Game is going to be one of those events. It's going to be transformed into a three-on-three All-Star tournament among the NHL's most talented star players from each division, the National Hockey League Players Association and the NHL announced yesterday. The new format is dividing up the All-Star Game into three 20-minute games, with star players from the each division making up four all-star teams, the Pacific, Central, Atlantic, and Metropolitan. The 2016 Honda NHL All-Star Celebration will include the 2016 Honda NHL All-Star Skills Competition on Saturday, January 30th, and the All-Star Tournament on Sunday, January 31st, where the players will face off in a winner-take-all $1 million interdivision tournament. In addition to the new format, the NHL announced that Honda, who's the exclusive automotive partner of the NHL, and you've heard that all over this story so far, will expand its league support as title sponsor for the NHL All-Star festivities in Nashville. In addition to title sponsorship to the four-day celebration, Honda returns as the title sponsor for the skills competition and the All-Star game for the second straight year. This is an incredible expansion of the long-standing relationship with the NHL, according to Jeff Conrad, the vice president and GM of the Honda division. Now, details on the new format include it will be a three-game tournament played on a three-on-three format with a prize pool of $1 million to be paid in its entirety to the tournament's winning team. The tournament will feature four teams, one team representing each NHL division, Each team will be made up of 11 players, 6 forwards, 3 defensemen, and 2 goalies. The All-Star fan vote will allow fans to vote for one All-Star player from each division without regard to position. The top vote-getter from each division will be named NHL All-Stars as well as captain of his respective team. The remaining 40 NHL All-Stars will be named by the NHL Hockey Operations Department, for a total of 44 players with at least one player selected from each NHL team. The All-Star Skills Competition returns to a matchup between the Eastern Conference and the Western Conference All-Stars on Saturday night, with the winning conference earning the right to select when their semifinal matchup will be played, first or second on Sunday. Each game in the three-game three-on-three All-Star Tournament will be 20 minutes in length, Teams will change ends at the 10-minute mark of each game. Games that are tied after 20 minutes will be decided in a shootout. 
The Central Division All-Stars will play the Pacific Division All-Stars, and the Atlantic will face the Metropolitan in the two semifinal games. And the winners of those games will play each other in the finale to determine the overall tournament champion. And finally, the four division-leading NHL coaches, which computes out to the best points percentage following the completion of games on January 9th, will be named coaches for each of the four All-Star teams. Well, finally tonight, the mega fight between Miguel Cotto and Canelo Alvarez is set for this Saturday night. Will Cotto upset the man 10 years his junior, or can Canelo capture the WBC middleweight title and continue his rise in the world of boxing? Lyle Fitzsimmons stops by to discuss the big fight with host Ryan Bass. Canelo Alvarez has emerged as one of boxing's biggest phenoms, but this weekend he can take another step towards stardom, and it starts by taking down Miguel Cotto Saturday in Las Vegas. Joining us now on the phone, Lyle Fitzsimmons to break down this fight. And Lyle, things certainly got interesting on Tuesday when the WBC stripped Cotto of his middleweight belt. What's the scoop on that? And what impact does it have on this weekend's fight? Well, I don't know that it's going to have a huge impact on the fight itself. Uh, I think if Cotto would have won the fight or if he does win the fight, he had no real intention of staying in the middleweight division anyway. He's expressed no real desire to get in the ring with uh, Gennady Golovkin, which is what he would have to do according to the WBC if things go well for him on Saturday. So I think it's a story. It, it got Oscar Delahoya riled up. It got the Alvarez camp riled up. But it's really not a gigantic uh, you know, piece to this puzzle. It's still going to be a good fight Saturday night. And you know, regardless of what belt goes where, it's uh, still two big-time guys in the ring together, and that's what matters. Yeah, middleweight belt or not, Cotto still brings 15 years of veteran experience into this fight. What else favors him in this matchup versus Alvarez? Well, you know what? Uh, that's what it, that's what favors him. I mean, he's been in with a lot of big-time fighters. He's fought Pacquiao. He's fought Mayweather. He's fought Sergio Martinez. I mean, you name any big star in the last eight or ten years, and chances are Cotto's been in a ring with him, Shane Mosley as well. So, uh, you know, he's been in the deep water before, and, you know, he, he's given away ten years. He's a 35-year-old fighting a 25-year-old, and that, is always kind of a risky proposition for the older guy, but you know he's got a lot of skill and he's done well in his last couple of fights, so he's shown no real signs that he's uh, declining anytime soon. And look, age does certainly uh, it factors in the side here with Canelo Alvarez. Also, he's more athletic, and also the venue plays into his hands as well. So Canelo certainly has some things on his side as well. Oh, there's no question. Uh, Canelo's got a lot going for him. He's a, he's a big-time fighter. He's 25, but he, he's actually had more fights than Cotto has. I mean, the guy's been fighting since he was 15 years old, and, you know, he was on the big stage against Mayweather a couple of years ago. It didn't go so well for him, but a lot of people that I've talked to say, listen, once you've gone through that once, the second time you go through it, it's, it's more comfortable. You're not as nervous. You know what to expect. You're used to the big lights. So uh, I don't think stage fight is going to be an issue for him Saturday night. And that Mayweather fight, actually the only defeat that Canelo, Canelo has had so far in his career, Lyle. So who ends up winning this one on Saturday? You know what? More so than any big-time pay-per-view fight that I can remember in the last couple of years, this one's a 50-50 going in. I mean, you could certainly make a case for Cotto winning. You can make a case for Canelo winning. You know, push comes to shove. I'm going to go with Canelo. Probably, you know, the, to me, the age does matter a little bit. I think he's going to be, you know, more energetic in the late going. I just think he's a he's a better all-around product at this point in his career. He's young, he's athletic, he's energetic, he can punch with both hands, he's, he's technically uh, skillful, so uh, as much of a challenge as Cotto's going to present to him, I think uh, Alvarez has got the tools to get around him. And Alvarez has won 45 of his 47 fights. It can certainly take another big step forward 
if he wins this one. I think the impetus that Cotto needed happened earlier this week when they took his belt away from him, and I really believe that that is going to be the motivation that he needs to win this fight on Saturday night. I've got Cotto winning over Alvarez in a split decision. Well, as we told you at the top of tonight's show, this is the last show uh, for a while for the Ultimate Sports Talk show. We're going to go on a hiatus because of the basketball broadcast that we will be bringing to you here on Ultimate Sports Talk. I'll be doing the play-by-play of Waynedale High School girls and boys basketball, and it's going to begin tomorrow night here on Ultimate Sports Talk as the Waynedale girls will be on the road in Tuslaw, which is near Maslin, Ohio, if you're outside of the state of Ohio. It's a game that the Waynedale Golden Bear girls played last year in their first game, and they also finished up with Tuslaws. They lost to the Lady Mustangs in the first game of their tournament trek. So they're going to open up the 2015-16 season on the road in Tusla this year to face the Lady Mustangs. Our pregame show will begin. The PNC Bank pregame show will begin tomorrow night at 7.15, and tip-off will be right around 7.30. So join me then with Waynedale at Tusla Girls Basketball. And then, of course, next week is the Thanksgiving holiday. I hope all of you have a happy Thanksgiving. But in case you don't know, we are going on vacation until probably sometime in the middle of February. We'll be back with the Ultimate Sports Talk show, and we'll go throughout the rest of the year. So I'm thankful for you for sticking with us throughout this season. Thank you to all that have listened to the show this year. Our thanks to Greg Mitchell, to our numerous guests that we've had on the show. But most of all, our thanks are going out to you for listening to the show here tonight and throughout this year. I want to wish you a happy holidays, Thanksgiving, and, of course, Christmas. Merry Christmas to all of you coming up in just about a month, and I hope that you have a very pleasant new year also. Football action coming up tonight on the NFL Network. It is the Tennessee Titans in Jacksonville taking on the Jacksonville Jaguars. I'm going to kick back and watch some Cavalier basketball. Thanks for joining me here tonight, everyone. Happy holidays. I'm Dave Mitchell. Until next time, have a good week, everybody.